Church, you can go ahead and turn your Bibles to Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to continue here in our study of the Sermon on the Mount. Part 2 being of the Beatitudes that we started talking about last week. I'm going to start in verse, in verse 1 and read down through verse 9 this morning. <clears throat> says this, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And verse 6, where we'll start at this morning. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for the truths of your word. God, we thank you that the confidence that we live this life by is not in our own, but in you. Father, help us to trust, help us to see, help us to be dependent on everything that you are and everything that you do. Let us see you this morning, no matter what the week has brought us, no matter what hole we feel like we have to crawl out of, Lord, sometimes to engage with you, God. I pray that we would see the hope that lies only in you. Let us see it in your word. God, not from my words, but yours. Lord, we love you. God, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So like we started talking about last week, you know, the Sermon on the Mount was Jesus sitting down with his disciples in front of him, teaching from this mountainside where his voice would surely have echoed to the masses that had gathered there. And so what he begins to teach on, and the reason why we called this series We the Kingdom, is because he's teaching on what it looks like to be a kingdom citizen. We talked about it being kind of a kingdom constitution. That it's laying out, begins laying out kind of the roadmap for what us as believers can hold on to, to be led by, to be guided by, to know what Christ is calling us to live out and to be in our Christian walk. And so last week we kind of laid the groundwork. You know, some of the things we talked about last week, um, being poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, these are vital steps and vital mindsets and perspectives that we have to be in before we can begin to take steps forward. Because until we can realize how spiritually impoverished we are, we don't understand what we need from God and in Christ. Until we can be at a place where we mourn the heaviness of our sin against us, we'll never understand what we need to step away from. And then when we talk about when we talk about the meek, you know, we talk about that being in submission. And we're specifically speaking of being in submission to God through Christ Jesus. And so until we can be impoverished, mourn our sin and be in submission to Christ, none of the rest of this can happen. But he begins to kind of continue to take these steps up the, up the ladder. Remember, we talked about poor in spirit being the lowest step on the ladder because we can all be that and we all are that. We just have to acknowledge it and understand it and that Christ has made that first step available to all of us. And so as we begin to move on here, these begin to kind of map out these eight declarations. And we say eight declarations, you would read it and say that there's nine, but 10 and 11 are together. And we'll finish out with 10 and 11 as it connects us into the next section starting next week. But 
These eight declarations about a posture and mindset that God has called his children to. And remember, when we say blessed, we're talking about happy, but we're not talking about our world's view of happiness. We're talking about happiness at its deepest experience, at its deepest, fullest, truest form. And so when he says this, he continues on in this in this sermon. And as he's teaching this, he says this. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those, happy are those to the fullest, deepest experience, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know, so several of the the Beatitudes at the beginning beginning are really kind of laying the work of, of dealing with the condition of our heart. Dealing with the condition of our heart. And as we move forward, we start to see more of a relational aspect to it where it starts with our relationship to God and then begins to transition into our relationships with other people. But he says this, the first off, blessed or happy to its deepest and fullest, truest form are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So this here, it has kind of a directional element to it because it's giving us a path to run. It's giving us a direction to go. It's giving us a place to head to. And so when he says this, hunger and thirst for righteousness, you know, he's speaking to a group of people who would have understood what it meant to truly be hungry. To truly understand what it meant to be thirsty. You know, for us in, 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 in kind of a first world here, we, don't, we can't really uh, relate to that that well. You know, I don't know of any of us, unless we've purposely put ourselves through some type of fast or something like that, have ever truly experienced what it means to hunger and thirst to the degree at which Christ is speaking to them now. When he says to hunger and thirst for righteousness, he's relating it to the deepest sense of hunger and thirst that they've ever experienced in their life. And these people would have known that. And so for us, there's not the physical hunger and thirst that we can relate to all that much, but there is a level of hunger and thirst there that he's calling us to. And so when he's calling us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, and we've talked about this a little bit before, what is righteousness? So righteousness is having a right relationship, a right relationship or standing before God. And so Jesus is saying here, he says, if you are being driven by hunger and thirst to be right before God, he says, you will be satisfied. Because the reality is, is that for a lot of us, we're being driven by a lot of different things. There's a lot of things that we satisfy. We are all built in. The Bible tells us that eternity was built into our hearts, that there is a place within us that longs for something deeper, that longs for something greater. You know, and in our world, there, there's a lot of modes at which that is satisfied. You know, in, in a very self-centered, humanistic world, uh, the world would tell us that a lot of what we need to be satisfied is already within us. That it'll tell us that it's in what makes you happy, not in the truest form happy, but in the momentary happy or in the whatever we can grab our hands on type of happiness. You know, it'll tell us that, the, the, that, that our fullest bit of satisfaction comes from the American dream, right? Health, wealth, and happiness. You know, like what can we grab a hold of in that? And, and it's natural for us to gravitate towards things to fill that void because that's what's built into us. The problem is, is that when sin entered the world and disconnected us from the true experience of being in the presence of God in that capacity, we began to fill that void with emptier things. We began to fill that void with lesser things because of what sin does to us. 
Sin convinces us of what we need and what makes us happy and what we should be driven by. You know, Proverbs 13, 25 says this. It says, the righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the belly of the wicked suffers want. The belly of the wicked suffers want. And so what is he saying there? Uh, Solomon is saying there, he's saying, listen, the, the, the righteous... Those who are in a right standing before God, those who are, who are enjoying the presence of God, man, they have everything they need for their appetite to be satisfied. But the belly of the wicked, you know, and, and sometimes we disconnect ourselves from wicked. We're like, oh, we could never be wicked, right? Like, I could never be wicked. I could never be evil. Well, we've, we've applied a much more lofty definition to what wicked and, 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 and uh, evil is, whereas the Bible would tell us that wickedness could just be simply choosing to do things that are in rebellion to God or choosing to depend on other things other than God could be evil or wicked. And so for us, we, we have navigated as these people either in our unsaved life or even as Christians as we navigate dealing with and taking in things around us this state at which our belly is, suffers want, right? If we're, if we're separate from the, the righteousness of God, leaning into what God has called us to, it's inevitable that He tells us you will constantly have an empty belly. And if you constantly have an empty belly, then you're going to constantly be craving after something else. What's the next thing? What's the greatest thing? What's going to satisfy me? What's going to fulfill me? And so it's this never-ending cycle of seeking what's the next thing because what I have isn't good enough, so I'm not satisfied, so I seek something else. So I try to fill it with something else. I'm looking for the next thing it suffers want. You know, there's another proverb that says this, that to the hungry, anything bitter is sweet. You know, and so it's, it's, it doesn't matter what it is when we're hungry. We'll take in whatever it is. I mean, I don't know about you, but, but in times when I've been physically hungry and, and, you know, I don't feel like going to the store to get anything, I'm just going to make do. If it's eating dry noodles just to, just to make do, then I'm going to eat that. If it's going to be licking toast or something like that, like we'll, we'll fulfill ourselves with whatever we can, regardless of what it is if we're hungry. And it's the same thing in our Christian lives. The problem for us too often is that we have gotten used to living off spiritual fumes. We have, we have gotten used to living on very little spiritually that we don't feel like we need anything else, right? We've gotten very comfortable in that space. And the things that we do fill that hunger and thirst for fulfillment, for satisfaction with is power, authority, success, comfort, happiness. But the reality is these things never truly satisfy because the Bible tells us that when we're in this place where we're depending on something besides God, then we've entered into the status of the wicked. And what does the Bible tell us about the wicked? The wicked's belly is never satisfied. It's never satisfied. But Christ tells us, and the Bible tells us, and I love this, what does it tell us to do? Taste and see that the Lord is good, right? Taste and see. And I love that the Bible tells us that because it knows like if we'll just taste it, you know, and there's another story in the Bible where 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 it's like if you could just get the hem of his robe, like just enough, if you'll just experience and we'll just turn away from the empty satisfaction long enough to taste and to know and to see that there is something better. 
You know, it's like if you've lived your entire life off of McDonald's, the moment that you try like a real burger, you're like, oh, there is good things out there, right? Like there is something better. There's something more fulfilling. Like, and that's the same thing in our lives as we navigate. We have, we, have, we have settled for so much less and gotten comfortable with running off spiritual fumes and, and, and fumes that, that we believe are giving us fulfillment, that are satisfaction, but in the reality, we're having to constantly come back to it. He tells us, man, if you will taste and see, you will know that the Lord is good and that if you will hunger, hunger and thirst for Him, hunger and thirst after Him, hunger and thirst as Him is your goal. He says, listen, the Bible tells us that we will be satisfied. And, and the, the problem is, is that we constantly think that if we, can, if we can engage with the tangible things, if we can engage with the things in front of us, if we can engage with what we feel like we can reach for, then we'll find fulfillment. But he tells us, man, you're not going to find it there. The true fulfillment and satisfaction that we want and desperately need in life is intangible in the way at which we grab a hold of it. It's only in what God provides and how he leads in that constant pursuit towards him. Psalm 107.9, it says, For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Psalm 63.1, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Proverbs 21.21, 21, whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life, righteousness and honor. Like he tells us, you will find it. It's not a question. God offers a surety. We sang about it this morning. Your promises are yes and amen. Corinthians tells us those words specifically as Paul writes them, that his promises to us of fulfillment and satisfaction and honor and righteousness are found in him. Jeremiah 31, 25, he says, For I will satisfy the weary soul and every languishing soul. I will replenish. I will, I will, I will, I will. He promises us. And then Paul in Philippians 3, 8 through 9, a familiar verse. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, not having a righteousness of my own. I love that reminder that we need that, that the full, the fullest experience and fulfillment of life where he says hunger and thirst for righteousness, even if we believe, well, maybe I can find that righteousness within myself. The Bible tells us you can't. There's no righteousness. There's no right standing. There's no moral goodness within you that is big enough, that is strong enough, that is fulfilling enough, not only to satisfy you, but to satisfy God. We don't have it within us. He says it's a righteousness, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Because what do we know about the law? It doesn't matter how many stand. If we just start with the Ten Commandments and start to go down those. Commandment one, or, commandment one we've already failed there, right? Commandment two, well, we've, we've probably failed there to some extent. According to the law, we do not find our righteousness, our right standing. It does not come from our moral goodness, our ability to be moral individuals and to make the right decisions. It says, it's not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through Faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, 
Not only is it not a righteousness of my own, but it's a righteousness that God gives me and that he promises. What does he say at the end of that verse? He says, they will be satisfied. They will be satisfied. He guarantees it. A right standing before God, he gives to us in Christ. He says it comes through faith in Christ, putting our confidence in him for that fulfillment and satisfaction. We will never find satisfaction in what the world gives us. We will never find it in the identity that we think we need, that we think we have, that makes us happy, that makes us comfortable, in the, the things that we do in our jobs, uh, in, in our hobbies. Though we will never find fulfillment or satisfaction in those things. He says hunger and thirst for righteousness because it is there. It is in finding the right standing that we need before a holy God that we will find satisfaction. So how does this present itself? This hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, one, it's wanting to have a righteous nature. It's wanting to live in a capacity at which we are right before God. And listen, that doesn't mean we live perfectly right before God, but it's that we live seeking after the righteousness of God and attempting to, at our best attempt, live a holy life, live in, in conjunction with what He's called us to. Another way that this happens, is wanting to be sanctified, right? Wanting God to mold us and make us into the image, the holy image of God. Wanting Him to take us and to make us into something greater than we were. And this is something that we can't be afraid of as Christians. We can't be afraid of God taking us from where we were, beginning to mold us, which takes pressure, right? Which takes a grip, which takes attention, to the, 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 the faults that takes attention to the imperfections, that takes attention to whatever about us isn't perfect and allow God to begin to mold and mesh that into something beautiful, into something great. He will do that. And we have to be at a place where we're wanting that. God, sanctify me. Make me right. Mold me into your image. And not only that, but wanting to continue in God's righteousness. That when we have acquired God's righteousness through faith in Jesus, that we want to continue to live and walk in that. And then wanting to see that righteousness promoted in the world around us. Wanting moral standard. Even though we know, we know that we will never truly, completely change the way this world works. That's not, that's not what the Bible has called us to be able to accomplish. I mean, we know that, that Revelation tells us by the end the world is just going to be a hot mess. But still in the midst of it, we should want we should want moral goodness. We should want that righteousness. We should want it promoted in the world around us. That's why we evangelize. That's why we disciple our children. That's why we disciple the people around us. And so not only does he call us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, but he, he continues on in verse 7 and he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And so when we are satisfied in God's righteousness and have experienced his mercy ourselves, he tells us that we are equipped with the mercy that we need to pay it forward. To pay it forward. You know, I read a quote this week that said this. It said, there's no motive to mercy that is more compelling as the feeling that we ourselves needed it and have found it. And so what he's called us to is he's called us to be a people of mercy. And so what is mercy? You know, mercy and grace kind of go hand in hand a lot of times, but they are different. Grace is getting something that you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And so for us as people to understand that God saving us, saving us from the effects of our sins, saving us from the, uh, the, the inevitable punishment that we deserve, that is God's mercy being poured out on us. And that he tells us that his mercy is new every day. And that mercy... Is, is forgiveness, right? Mercy is the ability to withhold a punishment that may be deserved. And that He did that for us. 
And so He calls us to be people of mercy. He calls us to be people. And so the thing that we need to know, though, is that, that showing mercy doesn't earn us mercy. When He says this, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This isn't us earning mercy. But when we show mercy, we experience it on a deeper level than just receiving it. Because remember, everything that God gives us is meant to be given away. Like we, we, our blessings, the resources we have, God has given us those things to use those things for other people and for the growth of His kingdom. God has, has given us mercy, not to just withhold to ourselves. He's given us grace, not to just hold out to ourselves, but to pour those things out to other people. He has not given us anything in our life to be just stored up in silos. He's given us what we have to be given back away. And so He's given us mercy for us to be giving away mercifully. You know, so mercy is forgiveness, it's compassion as we've received from God's mercy and we've experienced the deeper joy that comes with it. Mercy isn't earned or deserved. Mercy is given. Matthew 9.13, he tells his disciples, he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You know, he's speaking this to a people who would have known religiously what it meant to sacrifice. That the religious duties, right, were part of it was to sacrifice. And he says, he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And then he continues and he says this, and this is why this is very interesting. He says, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So how do we deal with people around us or people in our environments that are sinners? How do, you, how do you build a relationship there? How do you navigate that? How do you disciple that? How do you evangelize that? What does he do? What does he say? He says, you show mercy. He says, this is what I want you to learn. He says, listen, I desire mercy because that's going to contribute to the expansion of my kingdom when you apply mercy. He says, not sacrifice, even though he said, not saying that sacrifice is wrong. He's not saying that you shouldn't participate in the religious ordinances that we've laid out. But he says, if you're going to put things on a, on, a, on a level of and try to see which one on the scale and see which one is heavier, he's going to say, listen, I desire mercy. I desire mercy. He says, I came to, to save the sinners. I came for the sinners, not the righteous. I didn't come for those who think they have it all together. I came for those who have a mess around them. And the only way that we can engage with those people is first to apply mercy. Because what's our first thought when we deal with people who are navigating sinful situations? Our first thought is they are there because they deserve it, right? They are there because of their choices. They are there because of their own situations, so they need to stay in it. That's not mercy, that's judgment. That's a verdict. We've, we've given a verdict to that person. They're exactly where they need to be and they need to stay there. But what did Christ show to me and you? He reached down into our sinful, messed up lives and he rescued us. You know, by God's standards, not a single one of us deserved it. But he showed us mercy by not applying the punishment to us. Who did he apply the punishment to? Christ. And so because of that, he says, show mercy. He says, show mercy. Now listen, there's a difference between trust and mercy and forgive, forgiveness and mercy are a lot easier to give. Sometimes trust has to be built. So I'm not saying that, that we, we, we not navigate those relationships or those things with discernment. But he has called us to be merciful. Because in being merciful, we will experience the deepest and fullest form of mercy 
by giving it away. That's the way we experience the deepest form of everything God's given us is by giving it away. When we hold on to the things we have, whether it's our time, whether it's our money, whether it's our resources, whether it's mercy, whether it's grace, if we hold on to these things ourselves and not see fit to use them in the way that God wants us to use them, then we're not truly experiencing them on the deepest level that we could. I'm not saying that that earns God's blessing per se, but what I am saying is that there is always something. There's that already, but not yet to all that God has given us. And there's deeper forms of experience with what God has given us. And so mercy, the thing about mercy, church, is mercy requires humility. Showing mercy is a choice, and we have to choose to be humble and to apply mercy. And the next thing he says is this. In verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So when we find ourselves in pursuit of God, pouring out mercy that we've been given, it begins to kind of set up our vision and perspective on who God is. And it positions us to see and experience God. And so when we say, you know, when he says there at the end of that, the pure in heart, he's talking about individuals who are navigating a kind of a singleness of heart towards God. Kind of a heart that is focused on God. This isn't a pure of heart that is perfect. This isn't a pure in heart that has it all together. This isn't a pure of heart that doesn't make mistakes or stumble or fall. This is a pure in heart who has a singleness of focus towards God. A devotion, an allegiance, a, a, a path that is fixed on God. And what does he say there? He says that you will see God. And the thing is, we know that God is, is invisible in the sense of what our physical eyes can see. And so what is it saying there? We see God through the insight of faith. When we have faith in Christ and we live out that faith, then we begin to be given vision to see God through that insight of faith. And what do, Jesus does is, and you know, and the thing is that Jesus even assured them here, even though they weren't seeing God the Father, he says, disciples, that, that they are seeing him. If they've seen him, they have seen the Father. And so for us, as we engage with Christ, as we know Christ, as we draw near to Christ, the Bible tells us that we will see God. And what does that mean? Will we see the physicality of God present in front of us? No. But he, what he tells us is that we will more clearly see what God is doing around us. What God is doing in my life. Listen, a lot of times we, we ask ourselves, man, it just doesn't feel like God's doing anything in my life. It just doesn't feel like God's doing anything around me. It just doesn't feel like God's moving. The thing we have to understand is it's very seldom that God isn't moving. The problem typically is that we're just not seeing it. Because we're not pure of heart. Our, our devotion, our focus isn't directly at Him. That it's divided. Our devotion is divided. Because, and the thing that we have to know is that the source of seeing God, this purity of heart, it only comes through Christ. Because Christ is the kind of the conduit at which we encounter God and that we see. I mean, the Bible tells us He is the, the, the way, the truth, and the life. Like, He is that. He is all that we need. He is the, the lamp to our feet. He is everything. And the thing about it is that Christ is the one that purifies. Christ is the one that fixes us so that we can see 
who God is and how God is working. Psalm 51.10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, a pure heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Help me refocus. Help me see. And so being pure of heart carries with it. Like we said, the singleness of heart towards God. No hypocrisy, no hidden motives, no deceit. And there's a transparency, an uncompromising desire to seek God. And the thing about it is this, this isn't part of our natural state. This isn't how we wake up in the morning. This is something we have to actively participate with God to be on this path for. Because Christ is the one that fills that within us. And that's the thing the religious leaders didn't understand is that they knew who God was. They knew about God. They knew information about him and they wanted desperately to see and hear from and engage with God. But why couldn't they? Why didn't they? Because when they looked at Christ, they didn't seek after Christ. They were looking for the next thing. They were looking for something better, a better version of what Christ was. Said, ah, this can't be it. Uh, the Jewish Savior was a, is, is, is going to be a warrior, a tyrant that leads us into battle to reclaim our land from Rome. Like that, it's, it's not this carpenter's son that was born in a major that rode in on a donkey that's, uh, that's being accused of, uh, of, of heresy and that's being crucified. Like, surely that's not it. That's why they couldn't see or hear from God. It's because they weren't seeking God. Their hearts weren't pure towards him. They were divided. They were looking for the next best thing. They were looking for something greater. Because what they were seeking after was self-serving. And most of our issues for us personally is that our allegiance is, is divided between God and ourself. For them, their allegiance was divided between God and self-satisfaction. And for a lot of us, it, it can be the same problem, is that, that we're, our, our desires for self-satisfaction, which divides up our attention and, and, and devotion towards God to a way at which we miss out on what He's doing. I mean, they literally saw God and still didn't see Him. They stood in the, in the presence of Jesus and still didn't see God. It just tells you how blind we can be we can be so blinded by what we want and what we need and how we view things. He says, man, the pure of heart will see God. Seek me and you will see me. You will find. Knock and the door will open. He says, it's there. You will know me. You will see me. You will experience me. He says, pure of heart will see him. And listen, this isn't an external behavior. This is more of an internal purity of life. On the inside, leading to action on the outside, pursuing Christ and finding God and seeing him. And then the last thing is this. Verse 9, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So peacemakers here, another way we could say that is reconcilers. Reconcilers. Because the thing is, and we talked about this at the beginning, any conflict that we have as people, any conflict that we have as nations is a result, regardless of motive or reason, is because of our separation from God and the result of sin. That is at the root of every conflict because we see in the Bible in Genesis what happened as soon as, soon as, as, soon as sin entered the world and it's in the form at which it came, conflict happened, right? Adam and Eve started blaming each other for why this or that happened. Uh, uh, you know, uh, the murder uh, between Cain and Abel, like the, these things, this conflict happened immediately because conflict is at the root, uh, the, at the root of all conflict is sin. 
And so he tells us here, he tells us here, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be sons of God. So what is he telling us? The sin of Adam and Eve not only put strife between us and God, but it began a rhythm of distance and discord between us and each other. So you see how this is going, right? It started within us, moved out to God, and now it's navigating to this point at which we, how we engage with each other. With this, our eyes had been taken off God and His blessings and shifted to ourselves and each other, conflicts of comparison, enemies through envy, fight, fights over feelings. But then Jesus stepped in to be the great peacemaker, right? Because listen, Jesus not only came to reconcile us to God, number one, that's what He came to do, but Jesus also came to reconcile us to each other. Jesus came so that we could be reconciled to each other. I mean, this is, this is the only way. Blessed are the peacemakers. This isn't just saying like me to somebody I deal with at work. Blessed are the peacemakers. He's speaking directly into marriages right now. He's speaking directly into families right now. That, that He has called us because Jesus is the great peacemaker. He is the great reconciler. He has called us within the context of our closest relationships to be reconcilers. So that that be our goal. That that be our attention. That that be our focus when we navigate these spaces. 2 Corinthians 5.18, and he tells us, he's given us the ministry to do this. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. So Jesus came into the world to reconcile us to God, but also he says, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Given us the ministry of peacemakers. And so what he's called us to as Christians is to enter into spaces of strife, enter into spaces of conflict. Number one, being within the closest relationships to us, but also stepping out. That the way at which we navigate with the world around us is that of reconcilers. Our heart and our goal should be to not only reconcile people to God, that's part of our evangelistic duty, reconcile people to God through bringing them to Christ, but then we also participate in reconciling the church back together. Listen, the easiest thing that we do is have conflict or strife with other people and then neglect it, right? Just let it go. That's the easy thing to do. That's the easy thing is to stiff arm folks, right? Especially within the church. Because that's what happens. We get hurt by somebody in the church and then we leave the church. Right? There's, there's people all over this community today that will spend this morning doing a lot of other, other things than going to church. And the number one reason why most of them will not be in church this morning, fellowshipping with a group of believers, is because someone within that context or that community hurt them. And then the community itself, it, it's, it's not completely, you know, not that person... We would hope, we would hope that they would seek that reconciliation within itself. But then there's also responsibility of the community. There's that meekness, right? There's that humility that we step out and we begin to reconcile. We begin to step into that space rather than justifying it. Like, yeah, I wouldn't go back either. Or I wouldn't do this. Or I wouldn't do that. No, we step into that space and we say, hey, listen, we need to reconcile. You need to be in a community of believers. Listen, don't blame God for the stupidity of people because we're, we're stupid people. We are. We make, we're going to hurt people. 
hurt people. And, and the thing about it is, and that people say this all the time, and it's kind of like, uh, you know, whatever, it's and simplistic, but, you know, hurt people hurt people. I mean, we're all hurt, and we're all messed up, and we're all hypocrites, you know? And people say, well, the church is full of hypocrites. Yeah, come join us. Like, there's plenty of space for more hypocrites where we're at. We're all hypocrites. Like, and so he tells us to be doing our part, to be those peacemakers, to be the reconcilers, even with people that we would claim to be enemies. He tells us in Luke 6.35, but love your enemies and do good and lend, ex- and, and, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. He says, be merciful. Proverbs 11.17, a man who is kind benefits himself, but a cruel man hurts himself. Man, be merciful being peacemakers in that space. And listen, because the thing is, like we said, it's more, it's simply, it's simpler. And, and, and more, it's more than simplicity. I'm, let me say this. It's more than simplicity at just peace itself, right? But a higher form, a higher form of peace when we lean into those relationships. And it's nobler. It's a nobler and greater show of strength than to continue to fight, but to be able to lean into a space and be peacemakers. To try to reconcile. And listen, the thing about it is we can't control how someone reacts. We can only do what we can do to be peacemakers in the situation and the reconcilers. And how they react is on them. And I'm not saying that we do it as an empty task just to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. We have to, I believe we go into a purity of heart to truly see the situation reconciled. But how they respond, we can't control. But it still doesn't diminish the responsibility that we have to lean into a space and be reconciled. Romans 12, 18, he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That's, that's, that's what we are called to do. And like I said, that first off begins within the context of our relationships at home and the people closest to us and goes out from there. So as, as the, the worship team comes up and we're going to prepare to worship here shortly, but I want to end with this. You know, all of these things, there, there are things within us that we, we, we want. You know, we started last week talking about comfort and authority. And, and, and this week we're talking about satisfaction and mercy and seeing and experiencing God and, and, and knowing what it means, this last thing being this, that the peacemakers will be what? Shall be called sons of God. And so what is it saying there? It's saying that the peacemaker, the peacemakers would be sons, called sons of God because being peacemakers, what it does is it helps contribute and bring people into a community because that's what we desperately need. Before we step off into the next Beatitudes, which talks about persecution, which talks about difficulties, which talks about people coming against you. Before we get there, he says, blessed are the peacemakers as we've built up to this moment, blessed are the peacemakers because you'll be called a community. You'll be called sons of God. You'll be called daughters of God. You'll be called a people gathered together to sustain and support this together. Because the reality is what he's telling us here, he says inevitably you're moving towards this point. What we'll talk about next week is the persecution and the difficulty that it is to live in a world as Christians that doesn't want you there. He says we desperately have to be peacemakers because we're meant to be called sons and daughters of God to know that we're in this together. 
We're not alone in the fight. We're not alone in being parents when we're struggling through what it means to be Christian parents. We're not alone in being spouses when we're struggling along trying to be Christian spouses. We're not alone in evangelizing the world around us, bringing them into this community of faith. We have a group of people. We have a group of people that have all been reconciled to God in the same way. No matter where we started and no matter where we're at, we were all reconciled the same way. We were sinful. We were down in the dirt, down in the pit. And Christ, Christ leaned down into the dirt where we were, taking his clean hands and making them dirty for our sake. And he pulled us out. He pulled us out to call us sons and daughters, to call us those who take on an inheritance that is not meant to be hid away, but is meant to be shared and meant to be given. And so the challenge is this for us this morning. First off, that we would seek Him to enjoy Him. Christ says, come, come. Not only that, but that we would show mercy like Him to fully enjoy mercy. That we would show mercy like Him to fully enjoy mercy. That we would purely pursue Him to see Him fully working. That if we're in a desperate need to see God at work in our life or in our marriage or in our relationships or, or in our school or in our personal life, that we would pursue Him to find it. That He is the light that lights that up, that helps us. By Him we see all things. And not only that, that we purely pursue Him, but that we bring about peace and conflict to fully experience peace. And so church, I would just ask you at this time, as you would stand with us, and that you would bow your head as we stand and pray, and just ask yourself this morning, you know, where, where are your pursuits? You know, what are, what are you hungering for? What are you thirsting for? You know, what is the level of mercy at which you give out and pass on? You know, and have we been actively participating in the steps that God has called us to, to be peacemakers, to reconcile? Because what has God done for us? He's reconciled us. Are we being reconcilers? You know, and all of it starts back down at that first step of understanding spiritual poverty, how much we need from God and how much God provides to us. And that if we come... Since if we come humbly before His throne and we tell Christ, God, we need You. We need Your salvation. God, we need Your rescuing. He gives it. He gives us the righteousness we need to stand rightly before God. He gives us the power and courage we need to take steps within the context of our lives. Only Christ can do that. I can't do that for you. Your family can't do that for you. Your friends can't do that for you. Only Christ can. I pray you depend on Him this morning. I pray you lean into who He is and what He does for you this morning and that we can have something to celebrate today. So let's pray. Father God, we just thank you so much for your goodness. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the confidence that it gives us to live by, to function by, God, and just to pursue in all these ways, Father God. Lord, we just thank you, God, that we're not having to look within ourselves for any of these things, God, but you tell us that we find everything we need. We find satisfaction. We find mercy. We find fulfillment. We find you. We find God, God, through you and through pursuing you and seeking after you. God, help us to pursue you purely. God, help us to show mercy. Help us to be peacemakers and reconcilers in the spaces that we navigate. But God, most of all, challenge us to be a people 
that are not only pursuing these things, but giving these things out. God, let us reach the world around us for you and let us, let us show them these attributes that you've revealed to us the last two weeks. Father, we love you. God, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Church, sing with us this morning.